And so we've been trying to use that as, as the, the loose term to bring into business situations, to bring in corporate situations, to bring in government situations where we can identify trends and we can identify as much as we know today about what we think the future is going to be to kind of create that world and get prepared for it. Think about the risks, think about the challenges, think about the pandemics, and think about all the opportunities. What can we do with emerging technology that's not going to destroy society? Let's think about the ethics around that, whether we should do it or not. Hey everyone, in this episode we have the chance to learn from Phil Balectas about speculative design and future thinking. Phil works as an experience design director for McKinsey in San Francisco, where he's working on new collaboration models to inform future strategic initiatives. Besides that, he's also the founder of the Design Futures Initiative, which basically creates meetups around the world and even a conference on the intersection of design and future thinking to inform around the impact of ethics, the environment, politics, and even the economic impact of future products and services. In the past, he has gained experience working on UX UI in Silicon Valley, for instance, as a design director at GE Aviation. In the episode, we talk about speculative design, and Phil shares inspiring points of views why the practice is basically more important than ever in a world that's increasingly changing by new technologies. But also, we touch on how to communicate the value of speculative design in a design process. So the reason for that is, if you don't think about where you're heading and only work on the next MVP and the next release of your product, you're never aware of the future of the overall business and the context the business has to navigate in. Hi Phil, thank you so much for taking your time. Hi Sebastian, thank you, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely, pleasure to speak to you. Really looking forward to speak to you about speculative design, about design futures, all of your experiences that you gathered in your career. But I think it would be really great for the audience if you could just set some context and really talk a little bit about your journey, where you came from, and uh, a little bit the, the steps along the journey. <laughs> from the very, very beginning? Well, the very beginning, I was, I was actually supposed to be a doctor. I was a pre-med student back in the 90s. Didn't do very well, so I dropped out and became an artist and discovered design. I have my undergrad degree in graphic design, but before I even graduated there, I was very interested in web design. That's what we called it back then, just generally web design. So I was building a lot of websites. I, I started my own consultancy, which was really just me and a couple of friends building websites for people. And then I moved to San Francisco, and that was all back in, in Washington, D.C., and then I moved to San Francisco in 2007 and started working for a startup doing user interfaces for vending machines. Robotic vending machines is what they called it. They were just high-tech vending machines with a touchscreen interface. And then realized there was this whole field called user experience that was emerging. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my group was dubbed the user experience design group. So I realized that there was this whole discipline that I didn't really know a lot about, even though I'd been doing web design for years. But there's a whole research aspect of it and design thinking, which I didn't know what any of that meant. So I checked back into into school and got my master's at California College of Arts. And it was there that I sort of, I had to come up with a thesis. And, you know, I really wanted to go back and get my master's because I wanted to be like really smart at one thing. I had a lot of friends doing dissertations and I, so I looked around for a thesis program so I could mm -hmm. study one topic. And when I was thinking about the topic that I wanted to explore, I, um, I knew I was interested in the future because I like science fiction and I just liked mm -hmm. everything that had to do with the future. And I was really interested in, in future technology and stuff. But I didn't really know how to formulate a thesis around it. So I took some time and I was still working for the vending machine company and we had a, a network of machines in Japan. And I said, you know, what better place to go and discover the future than Tokyo, Japan? 
because I always felt like Tokyo was very futuristic. So I went there and I spent a month literally walking around the city. I had bought a Japan Rail Pass, so I was, I was able to traverse from Tokyo to Kyoto to Osaka, all the way down to Hiroshima, and then back all the way up to, to Tokyo and trying to figure out like what the hell am I going to do my thesis on. And I found a, a fancy vending machine there that, was, that had like machine learning and was sort of suggesting things to buy. And that was sort of the impetus of what launched me into futures. So I was just like, wow, this is really crazy. What does it mean for a vending machine to be reading people's faces and telling you what to do? And I found a lot of connections between like Google and how Google sort of like channeling you down this path based on your interactions with it. Along that time, I did a lot of research and discovered speculative and critical design. And that was fascinating to me. But most of the work that I'd been seeing was coming out of the Royal College of Art Dunn and Rabies, Anthony Dunn and Fiona Rabies work in the Designing Interactions program back there and was just fascinated with most of the artist's work that was coming out of that program. But I didn't know how to do it. So I realized that there, it was very powerful. It was a different type of design, trying to investigate future interactions, you know, different types of futures and what that meant for us as designers. And, you know, beyond that, they just looked really interesting. You know, and, and Though they looked a lot like art objects, I thought it was really interesting. So I did my whole thesis around it. I wasn't very good at it. You know, I did my thesis book and because there's no, no one taught me it. I just had to reverse engineer projects and try to understand like, what are they thinking about when they created this, you know, this, this thing? And like, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. So I just tried to make up my own methodologies from what I'd found online. And by the end of the year, I presented my thesis and there was a lot of just blank stares <laughs> across the room. And, um, you know, I, there are some questions like, well, what does this all mean, Phil? And I, I said, so it was on data and identity wrapped in a vehicle of critical design. I did a several projects. I did a short film. I did some interactive prototypes, all investigating this idea of digital identity meant in the future, how it could be commodified, how it could be sort of subverted and exploited. And they were all kind of weird little projects that were just saying one thing that, you know, we should be careful about this. If we keep going down this path, there could be some really nefarious activities that could really take advantage of us. This was back in 2009, mind you, 2009, 2010. So it wasn't a huge topic. Privacy and all that stuff wasn't a huge topic yet. And so that was it. I answered the question and I said, you know, we just need to be careful. We need to be transparent about our policies and what we're doing with, with people's data and just be mindful about people who might take advantage of us and, you know, not sensitize society down the wrong path. I wasn't very excited about some of the reactions that I got, so I put it away. After I graduated, I got my diploma and I took my thesis book into my library and I forgot about it. And I got a job in Silicon Valley and did software for a couple of years. And then around 2015, I had sort of had this revelation coming of age where I was like, I'm not doing the work I want to be doing. I want to have make more impact on the world. What should I do? And the last time that I was really excited about anything was speculative design because it was so new and fresh to me. So uh, I started this meetup in San Francisco and I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to do this. And if people show up, great. And if they don't, then I'll stop doing it. <laughs> and there'll just be another signal that, that this stuff is not worth it to anybody else except for me and those people in Europe. But that became a success. And our meetups grew in popularity. Then we did our conference and, and all that stuff. Meanwhile, I'm working. I, I started working for GE at the time, General Electric, in, in a very, it's a very intimidating environment, working with a lot of PhDs and professors and stuff. And I hadn't brought futures in there, but I tried it out in a couple of different areas and had some successes and failures. But that was the first time I started to really think about like, this is a, a very important strategic tool. And I think we can actually use this. This is, can actually be part of our design thinking toolkit. And I think I can make a case for it, but I'm going to have to smuggle it in to, to our workshops. And I'm, I might have to teach people about it and change the vocabulary and change the language so people will understand how to do it and not be like, Oh, that's just art. Yeah. And then from there, you know, I, I, I left GE and then went over to McKinsey and I've been doing it there and even 
talk about <laughs> what I've been doing there sure. lately. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I found very interesting is that you said you were inspired by these machines and kind of futuristic thinking. And then, but then you went for a design education, right? Which is kind of interesting, right? So what actually is super interesting when you were doing your thesis around speculative design, not a whole lot of people did speculative design back then. When you were actually doing it, did you come across processes that you can use for speculative design back then? Because nowadays, a lot of people talk about speculative design and there are much more processes in place to do speculative design. I feel more established processes. How was it back then? Did you, was there some kind of tools you could pull from methods you maybe saw in the area of science or uh, other areas? No. <laughs> no, there, there wasn't like the speculative design method. There wasn't like the framework for this is how you get, this is how you do it. I had found some methodologies like the futures cone. The futures cone is just a diagram. It doesn't necessarily, it's not really a synthesis or brainstorming methodology. It didn't show how you, you came up with like, you know, the weird battery that's made out of like human body parts that creates electricity to keep it running. You know, that out of de decomposing human matter, like how do you get there? <laughs> you have to like, that comes from a place of research of really understanding both science behind how electricity is created with the body and by understanding the different use cases which have to do with with death and you know part of that is just sheer talent just show talent intuition and artistry of just being able to identify that and, and, and elegantly package it into something that's very compelling i didn't have that i was just trying to understand analytically technically how do you do this stuff and you know, so I did a lot of just traditional brainstorming methods, coming up with generative ideas and, and trying to figure out how to get there and trying to extract some of the more taboo topics like death, like religion. A lot of my, my work within the digital identity space has to do with like what happens to your identity, your digital self once it gets online, what, you know, how is that sort of aggregated and used by people and what does that mean to the actual self and what does it mean after the, you know, you as a human body go away and what does it mean for generations to come? Those are the kind of questions I'm asking. Those are the kind of things that I, I felt like weren't really being addressed by digital identity at the time. So taboo topics was sort of a way to get there. However you got there, you know, I, I just had to figure it out. And like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't very good at it. Plus, I had to, to sort of battle with my professors who were just discovering what this work was and tried to figure out if this was valuable for me as a thesis direction. They didn't really get it and they're like this isn't going to make you money this isn't going to get you a job it's just purely for provocation and, and just critical thinking and you know, <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't understand it so there's all that and i had to make many compromises along the way but that was a good lesson because here in business in corporate america you don't come in there with critical design work and say this is what we should do you have to make compromises with the, with the way that you deliver the message the way that you talk about it otherwise no one's going to listen to you and invest in you so uh, maybe for the people who don't know what speculative design is, could you give maybe just a brief outline in terms of the definition of speculative design? You know, every time I get asked that question, I always get a little bit nervous because there's so many different ways to, yeah. to talk about it. But it's a way, of, I, I hate saying future because it's not necessarily about thinking, speculating about, you know, design products and services in the future. It could be design products and services in the now but alternate nows as well. Something that's speculative is something that doesn't exist yet. So there's the traditional definition, which is sort of unfortunately too hard linked to critical design. The critical design, sometimes called speculative and critical design, is really a process and type of artifact or immersive experience 
that is really created for provocation, for critical thinking or critical investigation. It proposes a, a what if question. So we, we will tell you about this, this object that exists in the future based on some fact, like the UN says in the next 40 years, we're gonna have to create 70% more food for the people of earth. That number is probably way different today. That was a, that's a statistic from 2007. Mm -hmm. What will happen? You know, what does that mean for society? What will society have to do to start to compromise for that or to get more food, to produce more food and still kind of balance the ecosystems? And so you might come up with a service. I'm referring to something that I talk about a lot of, from Dunn and Raby uh, called foragers. And, and foragers was really just a subculture of humans who are using chemical processes of animals. So the way that animals digest the food and, and extract nutrients and proteins and vitamins. What if you could take that and harness that into an object that you wear on your back and forage the land with it? So you don't have to come up. I mean, it, it's possible, probably, right? You don't have to really prove the science of it, mm -hmm. but it's an idea. It's a speculation. What if we could do that? What would it look like? What would the, how, what would the behaviors be like? What's the actual form of this thing that you have to use to you know, like giraffes are, are, are pulling leaves off the trees or out of the water or off the grass. Like, what do those things look like? But not just that. It's there to provoke the question of like, hey, we're going to have to produce more food. What are the, what are our options? How can we use emerging technologies, emerging sciences to create other new innovations so that we don't get to that point? Or when we do get to that point, we're ready. And they can be used to provoke ideas that we can create now, or they can just create questions. Now, creating questions just for provocation is great. It's great to stimulate a conversation, but today you can't just, well, I don't want to say you make money off a conversation, but you can't change an agenda with just a conversation. You really need to mobilize it. And I think that's the one thing that's missing in the, in the biggest debate around speculative design is like, oh, it's just, it's just for art or just for conversation, just ask what if. But, but the problem we've been trying to solve is how do we create that vision in any sort of future and change what we're doing today so that we can avert ourselves from the, from the negative futures and create more positive futures, create more innovation today, you know, create better policies today, involve more people, you know, make better tomorrows. That's the reason we should be doing that thing, not just for like, hmm, okay, that sounds, you know, really scary. All right, goodbye. And that was, that's been the greatest debate of it. So what we've been trying to do is really look at speculative design, because when I say you're speculating about the future, right? The future is tomorrow or an hour from now. Everything that's beyond this moment in time is a speculation. And kind of just loosening up that term and saying, we can speculate about anything in the future and use it as something that will enable us to create change fits in that category, right? And so we've been trying to use that as, as the, the loose term to bring into business situations, to bring in corporate situations, to bring in government situations where we can identify trends and we can identify as much as we know today about what we think the future is going to be to kind of create that world and get prepared for it. Think about the risks, think about the challenges, think about the pandemics and think about all the opportunities. What can we do with emerging technology that's not going to destroy society? Let's think about the ethics around that, whether we should do or not. Mm -hmm. And those are the questions that, that we keep trying to bring and should be necessary in some of these companies that are, you know, societal impacting technologies such as social media, such as Facebook and Google and, and Microsoft, you know, the Silicon Valley giants that are ruling the world. They need to start thinking about that. And they are maybe not always through the lens of speculative design, but we're, we're starting to unearth some very important conversations around AI and ethics, which is, which is great. Yeah. I think, especially in that area, I think it's such important work to do because, you know, looking at the future of data and privacy, I mean, I also really like what you are mentioning about 
the connection between speculative design and then policy making, right? Because you can look ahead and look into the future and see what potential outcomes could there be if we go that path, right? And so this is super interesting. And the other side, like you said, also in companies to think about the future of a technology or AI, etc. How was your experience working with companies on speculative design in terms of approach? What are, is it a difficult pitch still? Or do people um, get it uh, in terms of the value it provided? And then also, how do you approach in terms of the process and the different stakeholders you need to work with? That's a big question. And that's what I've been working on for, for the last five, six, seven years, really. The easy, quick to the point answer is no, it's not easy. The speculative design, and let's just reframe that as futures thinking. Because another thing we've been thinking about is speculative design alone won't always move the needle. We're, we're mm -hmm. trying to talk more about strategic foresight, which is a very mature discipline, mostly mm -hmm. taught in business schools as sort of, you know, I hate to, to um, generalize it, but there's a lot of like analytical thinking trends and quantitative uh, value that I think strategic foresight helps us discover so that we can build the world based on data and then put those speculative designs into that world. In business situations, corporate situations, where design thinking is the king, and then you bring this new process that seems very like science fiction or futury, it's not always easy to sell them on something that might happen five years from now. 10 years from now, even harder. 20 years from now, even harder. Unless the company or the client is really looking at just like, we just want this vision, and we're just gonna spend some marketing money on it, and it's just gonna be a vision, an aspirational vision. But if you want to really sell it as like, we want to create a future that we actually want to drive our roadmap towards, you know, drive our bottom line towards, you know, drive an actual business value towards, you have to be pretty rigorous about how you talk about it, process that you use with them, and you have to bring them along the way, the data that you're looking at, the, the trends that you're looking at, really kind of creating that belief system for them so that they can walk with you along that way. Because most businesses are just going to want the thing that's going to solve the thing tomorrow. Get us our ROI and so that we can keep our ship floating. But, you know, five years from now, how do we, how do we, they're, they're still stuck on this, like, how do we validate and, and justify the ROI on something that's going to take five years to really see, to see results? It's a hard sell. So there's another topic there around how do you measure the value, the business value of speculative design, which I can give you some of my thoughts on that. But we've had to do lots of different things. We've had to shift the language, not talk about it as speculative or fiction. We talk about it as vision and strategy. Those are very powerful words in the, in the business context. We're going to do some strategic thinking, and we're going to we're going to project, and we're going to look at we're going to use some foresight, or we're not going to say forecasting because forecasting could insinuate that we're going to tell you what the future is going to be. And as futurists, we never tell you what the future is going to be. We tell you what it could be. We outline the possibilities, some of them very rigorously built on data sets, and some of them just very speculative. But we try to leave that open also, just so we don't, you know, so we don't get in trouble because we are also wrong too, right? We don't always know what's going to be. Like we didn't predict, we're all the futurists that predicted the, the pandemic. Like we'd all be in trouble right now, <laughs> you know? And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people were like, why didn't you predict this? But yeah, so there, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot that we've discovered around, you know, like I said earlier, walking your, your clients, your colleagues, whoever it might be, through the process collaboratively, all along the way, exposing them the methodology, exposing to them how you're getting to these answers or these uh, provocations or these, these uh, perspectives of the future. You know, because a lot of us, whether you're working with science and working with researchers on what the emerging tech is and, and the possibilities of it, or you're looking at trends in the world and aggregating them and saying, like, we believe this is what's going to affect the world. This is going to be a major influencer. They have to be bought into that belief also. 
you know, so that they can, once you say like, okay, we've built up the world. Now that you know what it's going to be like, here's a product, here's a speculative product, here's a speculative market, here's a speculative service that you can take advantage of or might be a disruptor for you. This could take your business away. And the other part of that is, is using things that your company are, find are sensitive to. So if it's like, you know, I always use the example of airlines because I did a lot of work in aviation talking about passengers and passengers buying tickets. What's going to affect your passengers of the future from buying your tickets? Because that's what they live off of. When it's like, you know, oil and gas, what's going to affect like, you know, shortage in oil production? Consumers, what's going to change the, change the waves of consumers of how they buy into your, your product? Is it social media going to be the influence? Or how do we understand the behaviors of, of the younger people today so that in five years, those adults or, or whatever, we know them well enough that we can, we can predict what they're going to do or give them what they want when they want it. So whatever it is they care about, those are the things they're going to be like, I'm going to listen now because you're saying the words that I care about. And so... It's a little bit, like I said, it's a little bit of a magic show of, of trying to just kind of, I don't want to say trick them, but, but use the things that they really care about so that they can care about a lot of other important things that will matter to the business. Super interesting. I had recently had an episode with uh, Kevin Batoon on the intersection of business and design and how designers should collaborate or can better collaborate with business stakeholders. And one of the key topics there was power of language and communication. And if we as designers use the language of businesses, we have a better, we are better off articulating the value of design, obviously, because we talk in their language, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think you were mentioning a couple of these examples when you said you don't call it, you know, speculative design, you call it actually, you know, strategic foresight, for example, right? Uh, which actually I know uh, some other service and, and speculative design are doing as well. Uh, when you talk to these people, right, you talk about risk, right, for the business, right, looking at potential negative sides of the business in the long run, right, uh, evaluating these risks and basically communicating the, the value of that towards the business. Is that basically one of the, the principles that you try basically to phrase it different? It's, it's all about the framing, right? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's some, there's a lot of examples of, of businesses that are afraid of being disrupted or displaced by a new technology, mm -hmm. whether it be like workers being displaced by AI robots or like just other, other types of emerging autonomous uh, vehicles replacing drive cars, which you need drivers with. When you think about it in terms of markets, you know, what's this going to change to your markets or your customers? then that's that's very important right that those those are very business words the market right that's your mm -hmm. that's your selling platform that's the environment that you're you're operating in when you, when you talk about that like how do we get prepare for a market that in the next five years we think this technology is going to completely displace us we're going to be out of business there there you go that whole sentence of words right there can be very like uh, inflammatory to a business's strategy and so these are the tools that can help it and typically you know you're you're relying on business analysts to create these projections right there are these charts with you know hockey stick charts charts and stuff and they do the same work they're analyzing what they think is going to happen with investments and consumer buying power and what's going to happen to their market and then they and they give back these powerpoint decks to the and and, and the business changes their strategy no different is that from strategic foresight and speculative design. The only difference is our outputs are a little bit different, right? You yeah. know, we're going to yeah. tell you all that. Uh, maybe not not use as many Excel charts or you know boring PowerPoint charts. Yeah. We're going to tell you all that. We're going to paint you a vision of that world, and we're going to put some products and services and even future people into that world, so you can really 
understand what it's like to live in that world and start to ask more questions, not just like how, how is our business going to survive, but how can we get ahead of the game and take advantage of what we think these opportunities are and also think about the many risks. Now, when you're thinking about the future and you're doing these kind of implications mappings, you could, there, there could be so many, right? And this is where you have to be collaborative and really work with your, your client on the risks that, that really matter, prioritizing with them. The ones that are very high risk that we think are huge disruptors and displacers and preparing for them. You don't have to you know, start up, spend millions of dollars into this like, you know, last ditch protective effort and then you know, get pissed off when, <laughs> when you don't have to use it because you, you're so prepared. But yeah. you can at least be aware of them, right? Like we did this work five years ago. We we're aware of this rising competition. We sort of met that challenge early on, you know, very carefully. And I think that's part of the problem. It's like, we do a lot of this work and it's like, where do we invest our money in? Like, oh my God, the world's so scary. Or there's so many opportunities. And business have to, have to start to understand that like, just like any other strategic um, planning, prioritizing what you care about, what's a real risk and what's, what's sort of just on the fringes is very important. Even with speculative design projects, you don't, you know, it's nice to put these things in the world and show them the product response to a potential risk. But if it's too far out there, you know, companies aren't going aren't gonna to believe it. If it's like the black swan, yeah, you know, companies might not believe it. And so you have to create a very practical belief system for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to understand your audience as well, right? I think the, if you go very far, it might be difficult for them to understand. I guess that really also depends on the people you work with, I assume, and the kind of context that you're kind of navigating in. And I think it touches so many of the kind of core skills of um, designers, right? I mean, very often, I recently had an episode around the value of visualization. And because it helps people, you know, when, when you design a vision, strategic design about the future, it doesn't always have to be the exact future where we go to but at least and i think that's the important part it gives everyone something to speak about right mm -hmm. so it's a visualization of what it could be you know i think that you know is true in speculative design but then also if you if you work in strategic design you will with some different uh, business stakeholders in a meeting and we speak about something that could happen or a certain business problem or a certain idea as designers we're able to quickly visualize it right we can make a doodle on a napkin we can go to the whiteboard, kind of draw it out. We can basically give people, help people with imagination because we can put, visualize these things. And, you know, this vision and this visualization doesn't have to be correct. It's just mm -hmm. a basically um, uh, a picture of the moment and basically brings us one step further to align everyone. Because what, you have, what happens if you have a lot of people speaking about a theoretical future is that everyone has a different image in their mind, right? Somebody mm -hmm. imagines mm -hmm. this way, someone imagines it that way. And I think by crafting out the potential future, you bring everyone together and basically say, okay, is that what we mean, right? Is that mm -hmm. actually the direction where you want to go? And then we can have a discussion on that, but it's easier for everyone because everyone sees the same thing and everyone can have a discussion basis and articulate the points of view much better, right? Yeah, that is a wonderful example. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's just like facilitation. Exactly. You have the same same problem, just just uh, aligning everyone on the same vision and providing enough information so that they they believe that vision and want to actually create the you know the roadmap towards that or away from it. And it, a lot of it is a is a it's an art and it's a science that designers have to like really get good at. 
Because whether it's futures work or it's service design or it's some new methodology, you've got to do the same amount of work, right? You've got to teach people how to do it, why it matters, what the outcome is going to be, and why that outcome is valuable to you so that mm -hmm. they want to do it. They want to go on that journey with you. And I think it's specifically important because we have so many social issues and technology issues on hand right now. When you think about data, think about privacy, think about policies and how we deal with all of these upcoming technologies. But I think the work of speculative design is more important than ever, probably, because the world is changing quicker and we have to find answers. Otherwise, we're not going to have answers. And then, you know, it's going to be a Wild West movie, mm -hmm. basically. Right. So in that regard, I think because the, move, the world is changing quicker and quicker, I think it also increased the importance of, of doing work like this mm -hmm. and bringing up a debate, right? So, and have people debate about these topics. How was your experience? Now we talked a lot about business, the business side, but then also speculative design is happening on the government and kind of the public side as well, where this can be also super crucial. There's a really interesting discussion going on these days around the future of human-centered design. And that's, you know... <laughs> that you probably are familiar with that uh, discussion that, you know, very often this has lead to great success when it comes to the business and, you know, products. Very often we don't think about the bigger consequences in terms of the environment and of the social infrastructure. And this is often very often not a, a stakeholder. We just design for the human. We don't design for the human that's next to that human, but we also don't design about the environment where this human is living. So I think that discussion is very interesting. And specifically uh, talking about, you know, uh, governments and, 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 and policymakers, you know, how they could be incorporated better uh, when you think the, about the future of a city, for example. So, well, first of all, do you think there's an overlap when it comes to that uh, conversation that's going on uh, about the future of human-centered design when we talk about uh, speculative design? And then secondly, about your experience in general with policymakers and, you know, design, speculative design in a kind of more public environment. I'm not going to sit here and, and poo-poo on, on human-centered design and design thinking because I think there's a lot of discourse right now happening around that. And a, a lot of people are trying to debunk the validity, validity and usefulness of, of human-centered design thinking today. I mean, I, uh, the way I would say, the way I would sort of frame that is that, you know, we have this toolkit that we've been using and has been evolving over you know, several decades now, or a few decades now, and we keep adding to it ourselves. And granted, there's still this like human at the center, you know, design for your user, empathy and all that stuff. There's still value in that. Like we still need empathy. We still need to understand people and we still need to do ethnography and, and do yeah. all that work very useful in futures thinking. While a persona or people doesn't exist yet, they're still based on the people that are today. You can still use those same tools. So I don't think that design thinking is necessarily dead. I think that, or that speculative futures, speculative futures thinking or service design thinking is gonna like replace any of that. I think we are con constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think this is what a lot of these purists are sort of, let me just say that designers are designers, right? We are, we're always trying to like, you know, redesign and improve everything. So the people who are like out there like saying, design is dead, long live design, are just like doing that. They're just like playing that, playing that role. But, you know, also more power to them because we keep trying to ask ourselves, how do we, how do we make things better, adapt to change, adapt to the world around us, think, think about bigger, more wicked problems. You know, there's another buzzword and find new tools to get there. I think futures thinking is not going to be this whole other thing. And this is definitely not what we've been pushing for, though. That's what it sort of seems like on the surface of like, oh, it's a brand new toolkit. I think what it is, is that our tools are going to evolve into incorporating 
futures tools, into incorporating long-term strategies, long-term thinking, into incorporating business as a major component of, of business environment, politics, all that stuff as major investigation points for design. And there's a lot out there. So I, I, you know, I hope that the debate is steers away from like what we call it and we just start to focus on how do we continue to contribute to it? Yeah. How do we look for problem solving methods in different ways and just, just build onto that toolkit? Mm-hmm. It's going to splinter just like, you know, UI designer became different from a UX designer, from a researcher and all that stuff. And you might have a speculative designer. It might be a future designer. Who knows? Who cares <laughs> at this point? <laughs> let's just get the work done, yeah. you know, and let's solve the big problems. And, you know, there's, there's quite a hill still, a battle to face with, with getting stakeholders on board and, and, and proving that. But we'll figure it out at some point. Yeah. We, we are. As far as public sector work and, pu- and public speaking, I mean, there's only uh, not public, speaking, public sector work in government. Yes, there's a lot of work. And some of the, the earliest futures work is always was has been done in, in government institutions mm-hmm. because there's a lot of long-term planning that you need to do to deploy services to you know mass populations it's just necessary much like it is for you know building a building a rocket and getting a rocket to the moon there's a lot of long-term planning and risk mitigation that you have to do so you have to be able to speculate very far down the road and think about all the different risks that are that are involved. So those are ripe environments to be practicing it. And there's surely a lot of examples up there of, of those successes. I do want to steer that conversation into the, into policymaking, which I think is a, a really important one right now. And when we talk about policy, it's a very broad topic. And, and I had just done a talk at um, Interaction 21 this year. But just briefly on that topic. Now, the topic of the talk really is about policy and how we design policy and how we could use a design mindset to understand what is policy made of, who's at the table when the policy is being created, who is actually talked to, what's the ethnography, if there wasn't any, (laughs) Uh, what's the historical uh, precedence for this policy, what are the laws and regulations that have to create the foundations of it. A lot of this stuff is words. Words and laws and rules that designers not, aren't necessarily part of that conversation. They're actually not really part of the conversation at all. The only time they get involved is when they actually have to do something to create, make it as part of like the UI or something. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's got to be the terms and conditions thing, modal window that you have to click on. Now this policy is all wrapped in there and there's no design around it. That's why people skip it all the time because it's not usable. It's not user-friendly. So that at a very tactical, practical level of, of designing policies better, that's one example. But I think there's a greater challenge and a greater opportunity for designers to help policymakers design that policy using user research, using synthesis methods, trying to make sense of things, using inclusion, understanding diversity and like how does that actually evolve over time and not accepting that policy is hard, fast, you know, etched in stone, that it should be malleable and flexible to evolve over time with the changing societal movements, with the changing perspectives. Because just like the word ethics, it is a social construct. What we believe is a rule today was, was not a rule you know, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. We have changed as a society and did a reconstructed what we call ethics and laws and rules based on what we all believe, we have all consented to believe should be codified as a law rule. And it's gotta change. Policies will need to continue to evolve just like our constitution needs to change. You know, the, the amendment of, you know, the right to bear arms has to change because of the problems that it has, it has created constitutionally. So we can start to look at policies as products almost, mm-hmm. and that might be kind of a, a weird way of looking at it. If we ch- start to apply that mindset of product design to policy making, maybe we can create better policies that are flexible and can actually serve the people that really need to serve it. 
or be malleable enough for it, for it to work for, for more people than less people and protect more people. And I think there's a huge opportunity there. No, I mean, it's super interesting. And I think it's uh, such an important topic for designers to be involved there because I think uh, we can help, right? Can do, we can't do I mean, all of the, the work that's so important that there are other stakeholders that actually remain and, and work on these, these areas. But having designers involved in that area can greatly help, I think, in terms of policy making, making sure we, you know, think about more stakeholders, think about inclusion, diversity, and think about potential futures. And I really like what you said about the policy as a product, right? I mean, you're applying basically a, a process that is very common for designers, but then the outcome is not a shiny product, not a shiny interface, policy, right? And it's yeah. kind of interesting to think of an, an output of design. What are the things that designers have to learn in order to be more involved around speculative design, but then specifically around policy as a product? There are, there are definitely people out there who are using design and innovation methods to apply to policymaking. Take the people at the UN. The United Nations has several programs and innovation cells that are strictly for doing this, like using design thinking to improve processes. So I had a friend working over at the UN Food Bank, and they were involved with kind of really investigating the process of delivering food to the countries that need it, whether it's through a natural crisis or war-torn countries or um, just hunger, and trying to use it to optimize the, optimize the, the delivery of it. So that's just one. That's as a process-wise. But they are invested in this type of thinking. We did some work. Design Futures Initiative did some work with the United Nations Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. And the UNDPPA has an innovation cell, which we work closely with, and we did a whole future of, future of peacemaking competition. We, we, we set out a competition last August, got 100 different submissions from around the world, and we have we selected 10, 10 unique ideas uh, represented from many countries on what that might be. Some AI-enabled, some completely profound. You can find it on our website. But even though it's just sort of a competition just to kind of pull the world, it was part of the UN 75, uh, 75th anniversary. It became a huge component of that anniversary celebration. The Innovation Cell, again, they are working with countries. These are diplomats who are creating the peace accords, the, the peace documentation, creating the processes for two warring nations to find peace and sustain peace mm -hmm. post-conflict or pre or to avert from conflict. That's a, that's a really great example of a policy that is being designed and where you have to have to bring people of, of two different countries together to the table to make sure it's inclusive. Now, there's a lot of politics involved, of course, and a lot of competing political agendas, but the fact that they actually have a group, an actual business unit that is dedicated to that, using design thinking as their, their forefront tool, using strategic foresight, they're running tons of strategic foresight um, workshops around the world, is a huge, huge um, positive signal, I think, for us. Because what greater, you know, what greater challenge and gift to get to give than to use future thinking to for peace, you know? So th those, are, those are some really good examples. So I think for designers, there's a lot of training out there. Uh, DFI is, is launching its first speculative design workshop training program. They have a few, uh, you, can, you can find that on futures.design. And it's just a two-day workshop, but it's going to teach you the whole history and how do you do speculative artifacting and experiences and backcasting and a lot of other these, these methodologies. There's a good toolkit, but I would recommend also looking at strategic foresight. There's a lot of books out there. You can take formal training. Now everything's online, so you can take it from a couple of different places. We, we are partnered with Kedge, the Futures School. You can take some classes there. If you don't have the money, go find a book and just teach yourself about this thing. Now, it, it's, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable because when you look at strategic foresight, we're not, it's not so 
design, what traditionally design heavy, like industrial design products or like user interfaces and stuff. It's really, it's a thinking methodology. It's an analytical methodology. I think the designers of the future are gonna need this, right? We're gonna be, we're gonna have to do more than just user interfaces for mobile devices. We're gonna have to be involved in, in strategy. And if you wanna get into that policy, policies product, you should learn that now. And we're gonna have to start getting comfortable with, and it's such a weird thing, right? Policy is product, like you're designing words, you know, in, in the end, you're designing words, right? And we're not used to that, unless you're a writer. Writers design words, they design narratives, they think in those terms. We don't, we're, so, we're, we're visual people, right? We're very tactical people, experiential people. So it's gonna be a new type of mindset that we're gonna have to learn to adapt to. If it comes to pass, I, I, I truly believe it. I think there's a ton of opportunity there. But yeah, I, I would start reading. Like there are a lot of signs and a lot of books out there that are kind of pointing to certain things that should help you get prepared for this type of future. Mm-hmm. If you believe it. If you think about it, you know, designers more and more went in the last years into more, let's say, theoretical areas where it's not so much about the shiny outcome. Anyways, with the design process, if you think about system design, if you think about uh, an output of a UX work, right? And I think designers have started to step away from uh, that the output of designers always needs to be that shiny something. Yeah, right. right? So, and I think it's just an evolution of that in a, in a certain degree, uh, if you think about the, the role of designers. Right. Uh, also, really think that to your point, when it comes to the UN, and uh, if you think about sustainability development goals, for instance, and about the grand challenges that we try to solve there, um, you know, these are things that you can just solve with collaboration because they are international and you need all of these different stakeholders to achieve them. You know, one more create opportunities, I think, for designers to go into and see how we can, you know, use speculative design to help out with all of these grand challenges, because they, they certainly will uh, need that support. So, yeah, I think in, in that regard, it's an exciting time. Yeah, that, that's the, um, I'm sorry, the, the author is Yuval Noah Harari, and he has a, a series of books, sorry, I just wanted to correct that, Homo Deus, Sapiens, and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. If you have to read any books, like these are Three really great books to mm-hmm. read. He's an amazing, best-selling author. Great, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Talking a little bit about um, your initiative, the Design Future Initiative that you um, also, when you briefly mentioned it. What are the things you want to achieve basically with that community that you start to build up? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the process that you have gone through. Yeah, the um, Design Futures Initiative is a nonprofit that we started a few years ago, and really at first it was just a business entity to manage the conferences that we're running. And then we were like, okay, we need to get serious here because I don't want to be just like, you know, a platform. We want to sort of eat our own dog food. That's the stupid mm-hmm. phrase that we use in Silicon Valley. But we really want to kind of walk the walk as well. So we are we have programs that were created. We have our three pillars, our mission pillars are advocacy, our futures thinking, mm-hmm. education, working with educational institutions like universities and schools, community building. And that's really what everything we do is centered around. Community, we're trying to actually build communities and chapters around the world. We are at over 60 chapters right now. The latest ones, some of the latest ones were now in Frankfurt and Dubai and Tel Aviv. We need to be more in the global south. So we don't have a massive outreach program, but we really hope that more people are going to stand up in the global south, in Africa, in India, Southeast Asia, and really say, I want to do this stuff. 
and form communities there and we want to help them create that for education we're working with children we're creating some programs for children to teach them about futures thinking not in the like corporate sense but how to use future methodology to look into the future and be be strategic <laughs> about your futures we worked with at-risk youth and we're working on something with disability kids with disabilities also you know because some people who sometimes feel like they have very dark futures that are very on on a singular path teaching them how mm -hmm. to look at many alternatives and kind of create strategies around that as they grow into adulthood. The education, the training, we're working with college students. We're trying to um, work more with universities. But like, like I said, collaboration and partnership is part of also our, our DNA and our ethos. And we really are not trying to be competitive with, with folks like Institute for the Future or Singularity or, or some of these other uh, organizations that are popping up. We really want to work with other people to grow the platform. We, we don't believe in like, you know, we're not trying to own anything. We just want to, we think that this is, and of course we have to charge for some of these things because it's a business. You know, we have to be able to pay our facilitators. People have to eat and <laughs> eat and live. So we, there's some things we actually have to put a price tag on, but we're also trying to figure out how do we make things very free and accessible. We put a lot of free content that's out there. I have a podcast that I do where I interview futurists all the time and that's free. And I do that all on my own. And we have content that we put on Vimeo that's free. So we do the most we can to give people access to it, but but we can't do it alone, and we should all be working together towards that. So so that's what we're gonna do. We'll we'll create more programs to try and find other places. You know, what about you know prisoners? You know, people who also have what what might seem like you know short dark futures, which not just short and dark, but like you know you know futures where they might not be hopeful or bright, and and help them to see futures through a, a hopeful lens or. You know, and there's other businesses. I think we can, we can, we're really um, committed to making this work for everybody. And we're going to do whatever we can to do that. I think it's a, a really great uh, initiative. And I think it's important that it, it grows so people have more, I think the goals are around awareness, right? Giving people more awareness around the topic, but then also an access point where they can join a community to learn more about speculative design and uh, grow themselves and also find maybe role models in the, in the industries where they can say, okay, you know, we have certain people who are actually already practitioner in the area of speculative design, I could learn from and then highlighting these people, right? I think it's so important to, to make this whole effort grow and uh, the, the, uh, the discipline of speculative design. So in thinking about projects of speculative design, is there a certain speculative design project where you say this is a great example for people to understand the value of speculative design or some kind of great speculative design project that is just your favorite design project in order to communicate the impact uh, it can achieve? God, there's so many. And I, I don't really want to, I don't know if I can really call any one project. I feel like I've been, been talking about the same projects for so long. So I don't want to say anything that's in any of my talks that are online. Yeah, there's a lot. I think, uh, so I'm not going to call it a particular project, but I'm going I'm to talk about some speculative work that's happening in industries that I think are going to be very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of work in synthetic biology in biology in general. Mm -hmm. So when we think about like, I, I was talking to Hugh Dubberly the other day, who is one of the, um, he worked at Apple under John Scully. He was pre, pre Steve Jobs. And he helped design the video for uh, called the Nest, the Apple Knowledge Navigator, which was like a very early prototype of the iPad. It's not a real project. It was a speculative vision video. And he was telling me all about the, the history around why they created it and how they were sort of, it was around the time of the 80s when there was a lot of emerging tech 
and a lot of buzz around the things that were going to happen. And, you know, the internet was just starting to come around, you know, touch screens and mobile at the time were, were starting to come around and uh, interactivity and, and collaboration, all that stuff was happening. And so they were able to kind of craft a vision for what that might look like in, in, in a device. There hasn't been a lot of like huge, massive innovation. Leaves. I mean, yes, the, the fourth industrial revolution is coming, coming around, AI did all that stuff. And you can kind of think of those as like revolutionary things, but they're sort of just inching, inching along. Mm-hmm. A place where, where design is really needed, we're not really calling it design, is in biology. And all of everything we've done with CRISPR, you know, we're actually able to design. And the reason the vaccine even exists today is through de- the design of the biology of using RNA. And that stuff existed, right? Those, those experiments already existed and were in process. And they, they took that off the shelf and applied it to, to, to COVID. And we're sort of maybe even scared to work at such a scientific level, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And there's a lot of speculative pieces that have been investigating how do we, what, what are the things we're designing from synthetic food and meats to uh, modifying our bodies, to prosthetics, to Neuralink, you know, there's a whole design opportunity there. Very scary one, but 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 it's there. To transportation, to space travel, there's a lot of work that a lot of a ton of space speculative design for for Mars, because that is literally a world that we don't live on. You have to speculate about a lot of stuff because we can't get there, and we have absolutely no, no idea what's going to happen. That's such a great opportunity to really think about a world that doesn't exist. You're going to have to you're going to have to use the data that we know. From what we're gathering all of the the scouting the robotic scouts there so there's a ton of work there so i i would implore you if you're interested in doing this work find some of these really meaty domains where you can really use it where they they need you they need foresight they need someone who can come in with a creative mind to do the research and to really come up with the potential products and services so that we can be prepared for it and create the policies around it and think about okay should we actually do this or shouldn't we do this and what happens if someone i, I was talking to um an artist last night and we we're talking about like uh what is it what's it like for a trans person to go to mars because there's so many things that a trans person might need around their family their you know maybe medication or hormones and stuff like that like is space travel space tourism prepared for trans person to go and you know what are the policies around that? We need to start thinking about those things. There's so many different types of people. So anyway, there's there's a lot of work out there, and I, I would I would look at and also architecture. There's a lot of people who think about architecture, what homes would be like on Mars. Architecture has been a place that we've been has been speculating for decades. That's part of their DNA. They have to be able to speculate materials and usage and all that stuff. I would look there also. But yeah, there, there's a ton. You know, come to Primer. <laughs> We're doing Primer again this year. We always do a, an exhibition of work. We curate projects from around the world and and showcase them. Those are those, and it's just amazing projects. Some of them do come from schools, and some come from boutique agencies, and and some come from corporate. So we try to make sure there's a nice variety of of different different projects. Super interesting. I mean, also what you're mentioning about Mars and uh, all of these areas. I mean, obviously this all attaches again on emerging technologies, but it's actually future. A lot of people, you know, built towards, but do we think about uh, it also in a speculative way in terms of like the different scenarios that could happen and how we kind of plan ahead for them? I think it's very important work. Yeah, super interesting. You have been doing sort of like being also involved in kind of new practices or new approaches also at your time at McKinsey, not so much in speculative design, but then I think it was called future practices. Can you maybe talk about more about that method that you developed at McKinsey? It's not necessarily um, a method that we developed. It's sort of we took the practice from outside strategic foresight and um, speculative design and, and sort of packaged it. We packaged the methods. We didn't make up any new methods, but we, we repackaged it for use uh, with our clients. 
And uh, we've, we've built a, a group there. We call it the Futures Tribe. You know, we're trying not to use the word tribe anymore, so the Futures Team. And we have a couple of different projects that we did. We, we uh, have a newsletter, which is going to be published in the next two months. We have got three articles where we look at the future of interactions post-COVID in transportation, education, and food. We were doing this all last year in the midst of COVID, trying to figure out like what those look like. So that was one effort. And then we have what we call Design by Foresight. All that was was us packaging the um, this process into a very abstracted language and methodology and process for use with the client work. And we have a couple of examples of work that we've done. We did a piece on the future of patient experience. And it was um, sort of just generally what's the future of patient experience for post-COVID in the next six months and also the next two to five years. We did two scopes. And I think that's 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 also key. Another way to smuggle it in with client work is always think about because they always want the near future. So give them the near future and also give them the long term being the, the fun speculative stuff. They're, they're both fun, but like... Giving them both the near and far is another way of getting it sold. We've worked with other clients thinking about markets, new strategic initiatives for markets that are coming five, 10 years down the road, trying to understand like, what are, where are the trends going and how do we invest in new markets and new demographics. What else? There's a, another um, research project from our McKinsey Global Institute, which is a very revered research arm of McKinsey called Future of Asia, which will be coming out later on this year. So there's there's a lot of um, different types of vehicles for this work that we're doing. And I think that's one of the, the things to note is that, that you know, we're trying many different angles for getting people on board. We have the, the sort of fun newsletter that is, that is open and creative. We have clear process documentation that we can use to show how this goes. We've got Miro boards with many, many templates for each each different methodology. We've got a, you know, a huge one just for futures wheel, like five different futures wheels based on what your workshop uh, needs are. But really having such a, a large library of methods. And again, we've pulled a lot of this from, from the commons, from public knowledge. But just having that and kind of reshaping it, changing some of the, the language around it, creating stuff that they, people can just kind of take and having documentation that you can, that's like five pages long that you can just mail around and say, this is what it is. Here's some use cases out in the world, like Shell, Disney, Pepsi, they've done this, it works for them. Here's an abstracted way to do it. Here's the value, call us when you need us. And we just start getting calls. We just start getting people inquiring about like, hey, you know, COVID's around, our clients are interested in about the next five years. That sounds like a futures thing. We hear the word strategy and we hear the word design. Like, okay, let's do it. And sometimes it's it's a matter of like, we're just going to use one method here in this workshop. And, and sometimes it's like, we're going to do the whole end to end. We're going to do a whole deep trend analysis and get trend reports. And we're going to do scenarios. And we're going to do implications. And we're going to do a speculative design and all that stuff. And you know sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small. But we take what we can get, right? And each one of those examples is a case study for how we can make this work. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like the 10 year, 20 year, like massive science fiction minority report vision. Like that's, I think that's part of the, the trap that we fall in is like specular design has to be this science fiction thing that's so far out, but um, not, in, not in business. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that you have to learn to be to compromise and be practical. Super interesting. I mean, if you think about it and we will make sure we're gonna put these links that you were mentioning all of these uh, website we we'll put some of them in the show notes so people can find out. I think people are going to be very interested in getting to know the tools and process that, that you were describing. I was thinking for a little bit in terms of, I think your example was very interesting that you said it's, you know, you sell them the near future, but then you sell them also the, like the long term future. It's a little bit like the MVP concept and like the stretch and vision concept of a design process, right? Uh, you always try to look how the product could evolve or the product could evolve. And it's a very interesting way to frame it when it comes to business collaboration. And I assume in that environment, 
you learn how to package speculative design in a kind of in a business culture and a business environment, right? And I assume a lot of these learnings are kind of based on on that, which is super interesting. It's a great I mean, analogy, by the way. That's a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, when you were working at GE, which is prior to McKinsey, you have been also be involved in transformation, so to say, of the aviation industry, which was around that you know usually aviation product, aviation industry or aviation products a lot about platforms, right, about the hardware. Uh, but I think you were quite involved when it comes to the digital uh, area, which was kind of new. Did you apply also methods of speculative design that kind of lure people into that potential future of what the business could be? Were there some similarities or was it was it different when it came to sort of industry transformation back then with, with GE Aviation? Yeah, it was, it was very different. We, we did do it, but again, I had to smuggle it in. I was sort of, I was the design director for their G, the aviation digital business mm -hmm. unit. So the, the business unit at the aviation, which was building the jet engines, wanted to start investing in software and data analytics platforms. And I was, I was hired on to build teams and kind of do some design thinking on that stuff. Again, we called it vision and strategy, and it wasn't necessarily always five years out. It was like two years out, three years out. And it was part of the design thinking, problem solving, road mapping exercise. We would be called in to work with an airline and we had our, our Predix platform at the time. We were basically selling that to the airline, but the airline, we had to figure out where do we use it. So we come up with an ambiguous problem. They would help us find a problem to solve with data and analytics. And we would do that, that workshop exercise and we would call it design thinking. And I would say, okay, well, let's think about the next two to three years and, and who our customers are and how this, this product, it's basically a product strategy session, right? But what I was doing was really kind of doing a speculative workshop. We were planning out the deployment of a, a platform to solve a particular operational problem over the next two to three years, starting with the three-year mark, what does it actually look like in three years? And I would start in the three-year mark also, like what's our vision? What's our like aspiration for this? And let's look, let's, look about, let's look at it through the lens of implications, the lens of our future users, the lens of the, the needs, the business needs, um, everything that we think was gonna evolve towards that future. And I would use backcasting to backcast into the present to outline the milestones and infrastructures that are necessary for that to happen. That is future, that's what we do in futures. You know, we come up with a future vision and we backcast into the present. And while it was all sort of around system architecture and, and how we're going to be using data and, and building towards that, that's what it was. I had to be very, very kind of silent about what I was doing because we couldn't say, oh, we're going to do a fiction and, and this and that. And I didn't do, I mean, the most we ever did, the fanciest thing that we ever did was we did a, a vision video. We had some really great animators come in and they had done a future vision project of the future of airlines. And from the whole boarding process, when someone walked in, getting on the plane, getting to their destination, coming off, and all the technologies that would be involved at that time, iBeacons and um, using using their mobile and all that stuff. And we they animated it in Flash, I think it was. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. This is only like, you know, uh, seven years ago. But that vision piece was something that we could shop around and say, hey, this is the future of airlines, of the passenger experience. This is what we want to get to. And that became this aspirational thing. And granted, we did have sort of a roadmap towards there that helped the business you know, have that vision to work towards. But other times it was just like, okay, this is the system architecture we want to build in three years. This is how long it's going to take. And here are the, the resources we need to, to get there and, and the milestones and we'll give you a roadmap. It was, it was a, little, a little more boring than some of the fun stuff we're doing uh, today. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, I actually found one point interesting that you mentioned about the fanciest thing you did was a video, you said. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the output 
artifacts of speculative design. I think the aspect of communication, creating a narrative, creating a story in order to basically bring a potential future across are becoming very important output aspects of, of speculative designer compared to brushing up something in Photoshop, you know, and all of these different things. It's more about storyboarding and kind of movies and kind of videos are a great output method for speculative design, right? The videos are good because they're a narrative. Like you just, yeah. to digest it, you just sit there and let it play. So they're, they've got a lot of, you can get a lot of traction out of a video and it's, yeah. it's immersive too. Immersive experience where you have to walk in, you know, you create like a room or something. Those are fun because you get to like, feel like you're really there, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. Even just like a poster or an artifact, a 3D artifact, a lot of work to put into it. So you have to decide who your audience is and like what, you know, what you can afford to do. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about, I mean, I had a couple of episodes here with people that were into uh, entrepreneurship and launching ventures uh, with having design very early on involved. And well, what happened very often is that if you talk about entrepreneurship, maybe it was an internal video at a company that went viral, they made a product out of it. So that happened, for example, in one of the episodes around YouTube Kids and of the story about how YouTube Kids got launched. But then also when it comes to entrepreneurship and people that just started completing ventures and then used design, very early on design and prototyping to communicate towards investors and other people and the importance of bringing trust into everyone because everyone can see the artifact that it's going to be. They still have to do all the heavy work to make it happen where we can see mm -hmm. what it could be, right? And we start mm -hmm. to believe in that idea. Do you see any mm -hmm. kind of correlation between the role of speculative design and what you see in startups and venture capital in a certain way yeah just design prototyping you mean i mean yeah certain way but then also about i mean speculative design you look you look even further right you you're trying to contextualize where this idea could could go and it's, it's i think it's a broader scope than just designing a prototype i think <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it's visioning right I, yeah. I think it's the same thing and, and that's why I think that maybe at some point we're going to have to stop calling it speculative design. It, you know, I think there's a there's an article I keep referring to by Cameron Tonkin-Wise that it's called Just Design. It's all just design, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think I think businesses should be speculating about the future, not just thinking about how to get this this thing out the door tomorrow, but really what's the impact in society, impact in the environment. You know, I think the, the powerful versions of speculative design that people are, may not always be willing to invest in are the ones that uncover really hard questions like ethics and policies and potential like pitfalls. We need to start doing more risk mitigation experimentation. And you do that with autonomous cars, right? Because people could get killed. You do that with airplanes, right? Because people get, could get killed. They don't think about that with software. They don't think that like, oh, there's death involved. But yet, you know, things like Facebook could enable a lot of like really bad things to happen, like the election and, you know, these, these growing um, sub communities, these hate communities. Like we should have been speculating on those things a long time ago and putting policies in place so that, that those things don't happen. Why aren't we doing that today? There's always a martyr. Like we always have to wait for a trauma to happen for us to actually like do something about it. Why can't we doing that, doing that risk mitigation today? It, it, is it not worth it? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what really like gets me is like, hey, you're building something that has a lot of potential. Is it not worth thinking about the risks that are involved? Okay, so it might be a little bit dystopic. So what? Take a little bit of time to do it. You don't have to like spend you know, an entire year just thinking about dystopia and like going into a deep, dark depression. Just try it out. Try thinking about what the implications are. Prioritize what the, what the, what the worst implications are and see if you can come up with some tactics to, to mitigate that now. Because yeah, your product could be very successful. 
and great, more power to you. But you could also have a very negative impact on certain things. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you're, you're creating a, a weapon, just like work on it. And the key here is to, to continue to monitor its progress over time, monitor how your policies are working and make sure that you're right or that there's something you haven't missed. And that's, that's the thing is like, you have to constantly like, the future keeps changing. Every day the future is changing and you have to keep monitoring like, are we on the right path? Did we think about this thing? Are we doing the right thing? Keep questioning it. And it may seem like, oh God, that's a lot of work. Why don't we just pull the product out and just let it fail? And, and that's much easier, right? Like, okay, but your failure could be a very massive failure. Are you prepared to live with that? All right, well, <laughs> it's your thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and you would design and shape your product differently if you would think about these different topics, right? Yeah. You can't have too, I mean, we can't like overload it with every single safeguard for every single negative implication. Yes, I believe that. That's not the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. But the more you aware you are of that, at least you have an awareness of it. And if you could at least like write down like, okay, well, this is what we would do in this situation. Yeah. Great. Spend a couple seconds on that kind of thing and prioritize like how you might want to address it. Yeah, yeah. It's not too hard. Yeah. There was an interesting quote, I read a piece of an article I read recently from Mark Cuban, who talked about that as a business, you always want to anticipate how someone else would put you out of business. So basically, I mean, that's just another approach of speculative design towards, I mean, just communicating it towards business stakeholders in terms of the value. Yeah. You want to be aware of these risks, right? Yeah. And this market shift that could happen. And I think what, what's also interesting is that I think one of the things why it's maybe also tough for, you know, a lot of people to, to speculate is that, you know, you, you, need to, you need to know the processes. So the awareness is low of the general topic. That's one thing. But then also you, people are not aware of these tools that you can use. And well, there are not many speculative designers. That's another thing, right? So I think as these tools become more and more available, as there are more people that can apply these methods and help out with that, I think it's also going to greatly evolve the, the usage of it. So it's very exciting, I think. Another thing about speculative design is that, you know, it, it also feels that it's kind of the different side of agile, if you think about it, because as designers, we have very often, you know, working in an agile method. So we think about what are we doing next two weeks, next week, right? right. Which right. feature do we launch in one month? Yeah. So we always, the fog is, is never really far. So you can't really yeah. see very far very often. So... With speculative design, you put away all the fog, right? You try to look into yeah. the future, which is very different to, I think, how recently a lot of designers have been working or have been basically been asked to work in their kind of a new environment in the business, which is also very interesting. So it kind of opens up a completely different way for designers to, to work with them. But um, I like the analogy that you, you made with the MVP. So I think there's a, a relationship between what you're saying here with Agile and that, where like you come up with the future vision, but then backcast into the present, think about what's the MVP towards that future vision. And then we can still practice the agile. We can do that, but we always still have our North star, right? This is yep. the, the preferred future and it will change again, based on how the future unfolds. And you have to be open to it changing and shifting it just like agile also changes based on user behavior, user feedback, right? But it, you still have the North star. It's pretty much the same thing. You know, there's always the, 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 the Corvette that you're, you're shooting for, but the Corvette changes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm ranting in this podcast all the time about the importance of you know, creating design visions and looking at a north star of a product, uh, because I think it's so important uh, to think about it. Because specifically from a user side, you need the well, you need to uh, communicate also the needs you have to business technology when it comes to long-term changes that you wanna have around maybe 
that requires a new backend, right? Or maybe that requires a new business model. But if you never have the time to articulate a North Star from, especially from a, a user side, then you will never, never be able to communicate these requirements to the other stakeholders yeah. in order to get to that North Star because you're always yeah. going to be driven by, by business and technology and right. they want to uh, right. tell you what you have to do in two weeks. Yeah. It's like the little things without looking me up and thinking like, what are we doing all this for anyway? That's the vision there that's what we're trying to get to that's where yeah, we're building. Yeah, yeah and you know it can greatly i think unite a team as well if you think about it if everyone aligns on a north star where they want to go it motivates the whole team and motivates everyone within the institution right i agree and it, it creates trust for everyone everyone feels like they're building something great and it also creates a kind of common picture for everyone and a kind of mm -hmm. reason to go to work. So, so important, I think. Maybe lastly, I mean, so one thing that, that certainly has transformed everyone's life, obviously in the last uh, year was the topic of obviously COVID, right? So how do you think this has changed the, um, the role of designers and what did it meant for speculative design? Uh, COVID. Well, I mean, there was a lot of like trying to get on with business as usual with COVID and sort of having to balance the, the new working parameters of being at home, uh, being with children and having to homeschool and all that stuff. So I think just from a, from a, a working perspective, there's, there's that. We've seen a lot of interest now in, in, in futures thinking because of COVID because you know, companies are trying to figure out how to reopen the pandemic and also not just reopen and recover and save their business, but how do they sustain through a post-pandemic and be prepared for a next pandemic, a potential next pandemic or a next surge and all that stuff. So there's a ton of opportunity there. I think there's probably a lot of designers and, and companies out there don't realize like, hey, there's a toolkit out there that can help you do that. They're going to help you reopen. Let's just use design as, as design and think about like, what's the parameters today that we have to design around? Plus, how do we use like long-term thinking to think about what are the trends and what are the what potential negative implications that if they happen, will we be prepared? How do we how do we apply the first aid at that point? So there is there's a lot of like COVID speculation right now, as well as, as, well as products. Like, okay, what if what if we got to wear masks forever? Like, you know, I think uh, Will I Am just put out a really cool mask that's got LEDs and HEPA filters and has you know really high end headphones. It costs three hundred bucks. So he's like really thinking <laughs> of like what consumers are going to want to want to invest in. And so there's some fun things like that. There's some fun things to kind of think about what's happening in, in public spaces, like like you know social distancing and architecture and ventilation and how it's going to change the the transportation experience and just like the social experience. And we'll address some of these in our our McKinsey newsletter that we're putting out on on food and transportation. But I think there's so many opportunities there, right? That new things that we have to to design around for public and health safety as well as like the future of business. You know, businesses in this, like their whole remote environment, hybrid environments, there's so much, so much opportunity there. And it's scary to think about that. We're gonna, we may not be getting back to normal in the next, you know, anytime soon, but we've got it. Someone's got to design around that. We still have to move on. So I'd be taking advantage of that, <laughs> that everywhere that I can, even remote events and collaboration, this kind of thing that we're, we're doing right now. There's a ton of opportunity there. Zoom has been like, you know, leading a lot of this from the very beginning, but there's lots of new platforms that are coming out, new ways to interact and collaborate 
that are happening. And I think I'd love to see what design could do to make this experience a lot more palatable. How do we replace the thing that we're missing the most, which is human contact through this platform and try to regain some of that, some of those senses. Super interesting. Super interesting. Thanks for sharing. I would love to continue talking to you, Phil. And we've been going on for, I think it could be the longest episode on design wise. I'm not so sure. Are you going to, you're going to use all of this? Let's see, but we have to wrap it up because of time. And, but I really appreciate your insights that you shared. I would have loved to continue to go on here, but um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Sebastian. It's really honored to be on the podcast uh, and really love the the conversations too. I wish I could continue talking too, (laughs) but I I think people would get bored after listening to to me for two hours. All right. That was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did, it would really mean a lot to me if you would give it a positive review because it makes other people also discover the content. It would also mean a lot to me if you liked the episode and would share with someone else who would also benefit from the content and episode. And I would be super interested to hear about your biggest takeaway and learning from the episode. Just let me know via social media. I'm super interested to hear what you think. And I hope you have a good day. Bye.